1: All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills, and stay open for business. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program, folks. Rob Breckenridge with you. That was U.S. President Joe Biden earlier today trying to reassure not just customers of the Silicon Valley Bank, but trying to reassure everybody about the uh, the strength, the stability of the U.S. banking system and, and the implications, obviously, then for the global banking system. Uh, So this has unfolded just in the past few days here. So Biden today says his government is not going to bail out Silicon Valley Bank, but that steps will be taken to ensure that depositors are protected. Investors, that's going to be a different story. So that was uh, words from the uh, from the U.S. president today. Now, here in Canada. The Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, which reports to the Minister of Finance, has stepped in to take over the Canadian operations of Silicon Valley Bank. Now, they didn't have a banking license in Canada, did operate as a foreign bank branch. The regulator says it's stepping in to protect creditors. Uh, In the U.K., uh, they actually managed to facilitate a sale of the British branch of Silicon Valley Bank to HSBC. Uh, Britain's Treasury Chief uh, Chief Jeremy Hunt uh, says Silicon Valley Bank UK is relatively small, but it does play an important role in the British economy.
2: A number of our most promising and important technology and life science companies had their money with Silicon Valley Bank in their UK branch. So we've been working over the weekend. I've been in constant contact with the governor of the Bank of England, uh, the Prudential Regulatory Authority, uh, the prime minister to work up a solution.
1: Okay, so now the the talk of, you know, a bank collapse or a bank failure, there's echoes here of of 2008 uh, in the start of the Great Recession. What happened here? Why did uh, things go sideways at SVB? Why did it go under? What are the implications of that? Well, someone who's been following this story and wrote a really interesting piece for The Globe and Mail about what was going on at Silicon Valley Bank, which you can find at theglobeandmail.com, is New York-based journalist Jacob Silverman. He's also the author of two books, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud in terms of service, social media, and the price of constant connection. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Jacob, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. To a lot of people, this seemed to come out of nowhere. I think a lot of people probably hadn't even heard of Silicon Valley Bank. But any bank failing gets people's attention. First of all, your sense of the significance of this.
0: Well, we don't have as many banks in the U.S. as we did uh, before the 2008 crisis. So this was the 16th largest bank in the U.S., which is a pretty uh, high up there number. And it, but it was very important both strategically and culturally for Silicon Valley and the tech industry. Uh, This is where companies went after they raised their first big investment round and put and deposited their money or where they got loans and where a lot of very wealthy individuals and their funds, uh, their venture capital funds kept their money. So it was a big deal uh, in Silicon Valley. And I think one thing I argue in my piece is that also that that uh, self-image, I think, and that blow to their self-image matters, too.
1: Right. I mean, why was there a need for this in the first place? Was there a sense of, of hubris and just thinking, look, we're we're unique, we're separate, we're special, we should have our own institution? Or, or why was this bank created in the first place?
0: Uh, it started in the early 80s, and, uh, you know, I think it grew pretty quickly to basically service the, the growing startup economy. And, um, you know, it always helps to have a, a friendly bank in hand, I think. And it claimed to cater specifically to the, the whatever the particular needs of, you know, new companies might be. But um, I think a lot of it was more relationship-based than, say, offering uh, any unique services. There are some things about the bank that were unusual, though. Um, it had the second largest number of accounts that are over the FDIC insurance threshold, meaning, theoretically, until yesterday... Um, A lot of that money was at stake because there were these big accounts uh, holding money at the bank of these very wealthy people. And what we saw over the weekend was a lot of them were agitating both on Twitter and in the media and wherever they could for the rescue of the bank and the guarantee of those deposits.
1: So in terms of what happened here, I mean, this is kind of an old fashioned bank run. There's there's a lot of reasons maybe what you know, why this happened or what sparked this bank run. But that's essentially what it comes down to here, isn't it?
0: I think so, and there's been reporting in the in the Wall Street Journal. There was a, actually a long tweet from a venture capitalist who uh, seemed to participate in this, uh, and so various sources emerging to say that a lot of this happened in in very tight circles of wealthy people from Silicon Valley, CEOs, uh, partners of venture capital funds, who heard bad things about the bank. Uh, there was also a Financial Times article that says the bank had hosted 40 CFOs from Silicon Valley at a conference recently. And then, I mean, we can talk about causes, but basically there was a perception at least that the bank was in trouble and a a tight group of influential people who were in group chats with one another uh, basically started a bank run and they withdrew a lot of money and the bank didn't really have enough cash or liquid assets on hand to support that. But I think what's interesting there is that it's a very it was a very tight group of people, very social group of like top Silicon Valley folks who were behind. this.
1: So they didn't have the money because, as we understand, then they tied up a lot of their cash into bonds. And I guess once people started looking for their money, they had to sell off these bonds at a loss. But why did they go so heavy then on these these long term bonds?
0: I mean, I suppose they are, they're going to have to account for their strategy. That is seen as one of, I think the the key mistakes the bank made was that when interest rates were low, which they were for a long time, they, they, uh, they put a lot of their capital into uh, these long-term bonds, hoping to sort of uh, get a little more profit out of the situation. But once rates start going up, they didn't really have uh, anything to hedge against that or to account for that. So, um, you have this run in the bank where people are withdrawing all their money. Well, we don't have enough cash on hand. We have these bonds. We're going to sell these things uh, that we mistakenly bought uh, with a long-term maturity period. Uh, and we're going to sell them now at a loss. And, and that's basically what happened there. But it was part of a, a seemingly uh, reckless strategy, or at least one that didn't account for any change in interest rates. Um, and there are other features of the bank, I think, that that may contribute to, why it failed and we're definitely going to learn more in the coming weeks
1: right and this is also i guess a byproduct of you know what's been happening in the tech sector you know the slump in tech stops stocks the the big you know collapse almost in, in cryptocurrency all of that seems to have factored in here too
0: definitely i mean silvergate capital which is a major crypto bank uh there are only really a few banks that really cater to crypto in the united states and that was one of them and that bank failed and was taken over by the F- and, you know, was taken over by the government just a few days earlier. So there are ways that, in which some of these companies had exposure to both either Silvergate directly or to crypto companies that have their money there. You know, these losses are, re, tend to reverberate, and they also reverberate, as I said, through these social networks of people talking. And then suddenly you have billionaires saying, maybe we should take our money out. And there was some reporting that Peter Thiel, one of the most influential most powerful figures in the tech industry, told his portfolio company that his uh, venture capital firm take your money out of um, Silicon Valley Bank. So you can see how there are, you know, there are a number of problems, or maybe not existential, but facing the tech industry. So this is broader than just, um, than just one bank.
1: So what happens now? Right? there's a lot of talk as to whether the government needs to step in and, and try to save this this bank, which would essentially be a bailout. I mean, there's the, you know the balance between protecting people who have deposits that could be at risk versus, you know, the investors who may be more exposed here. But w- what are the next steps?
0: That seems to be what's going to happen. Uh, yesterday, uh, the Treasury Department and, and Biden released some statements saying. They are backing depositors beyond that $250,000 FDIC insurance threshold. Um, you know That might seem like sort of a, a random number, but it's really – it's kind of what distinguishes everyday people who generally don't have more than $250,000 in a checking account from uh, commercial and business entities. Um, and one would think that you know commercial and business entities that have a lot of money, that have even billions of dollars, could take other protections um, or precautions to, to handle their money. Um, but it was really a group of people, I would say, that often have a skeptical view of government intervention or lean libertarian saying yeah. we need to bail out or else the rest of the economy is going to crash or these other banks are going to get involved and it's going to be a problem. And in some ways, that may have been true, but I think what the problem that, that a lot of people saw was it felt a bit like a hostage situation, like you need to bail us out, influential, um, you know, influential uh technologists and venture capitalists and private equity people or else this is going to spread and i think the government ultimately decided that i mean at least they bought that argument and they're guaranteeing depositors i mean shareho- shareholders are in some of these banks are not going to be um, compensated executives are going to move on they not people in parachutes probably but it, it still feels like the tech industry perhaps made some reckless choices uh, along with their favorite bank and And they kind of got what they wanted, which was a bailout.
1: It's interesting. It's something you touch on in the piece, too. And just, you know, the reputation of the tech sector or, you know, maybe how it's fallen out of favor, perhaps, with the public, not quite as prestigious as it once was. How does that factor into all of this?
0: I think, I mean, I don't want to speak just for my own bubble, but Mm -hmm. certainly if you look at somewhere on Twitter where uh, tech people are very active, especially venture capitalists, and people heavily involved in this and who are agitating for bailout. Um one of the most prominent figures is a guy named David Sachs, who is an associate of Elon Musk. He has his own long resume, but uh he is very vocal and very politically influential, big donor to DeSantis in Florida. He um these people are calling uh very loudly for certain policies and kind of expressing themselves and their political views, uh, in a way that might be useful to know, but I think that some people find alienating. Um you know, to see uh, millionaires and billionaires um, who are often disdainful of the government or even the city they're based in, San Francisco, um, now saying that you need to bail us out now or else this is going to turn bad, I think that rubs some people the wrong way. And, you know, a lot of people have gotten very wealthy on uh, what Silicon Valley has produced, it has produced a lot of useful things, but I think. Arguably in, recently, in, in recent years, that's that stagnated, And the gulf between kind of the venture capital class and the rest of us see, seems to have widened, I think, both in terms of money, of course, but also like self-image and how they see the world and, and, and what we might want out of it. And so we don't always share their concerns, and people, are, I think, are tired of banks being bailed out in the U.S. So I think that's kind of the, the political and cultural angle here.
1: Really interesting. We'll see where it all goes from here. As mentioned, uh, you got your piece today. It's up at uh, theglobeandmail.com. Folks can follow you on Twitter as well. It's at Silverman Jacob. Jacob, thanks so much for your insight on all of this. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here.
0: Uh, Glad to do it. Thank you.
1: Really good. That's uh, journalist and author Jacob Silverman. Kind of an overview of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and how we got to this point. You can read his piece at theglobeandmail.com. On April 24th, 1980, in the town of Slave Lake, Alberta, northern Alberta, three-year-old Jeffrey Dupre vanished. It's uh, an active, open investigation still, more than 40 years later. And earlier this month, uh, an interesting uh, announcement from the RCMP, Chief Superintendent Gary Graham.
0: Investigators over the past 40 years have always maintained that Jeffrey would be alive.
1: And so they still say they have reason to believe that Jeffrey Duprey is alive. So that seems significant. Also, uh, in their statement earlier this month, an apology to Jeffrey's mother. The RCMP have not done as good a job as would be expected in communicating um, key components of the investigation to the family. But, of course, we would apologize that she's had to deal with that for the last 40 years. That would be Denise McKee the mother of Jeffrey Dupre was a young woman herself when this happened and has had to live with all of this, the guilt and the uncertainty and the grief for all of these years. Now, the apology stems in part from the way in which she was treated as a potential suspect. Now, she did a polygraph test, and very early on, police ruled her out as a suspect. But here's the thing, they never told her that. So she spent all of these years thinking that uh, she was still under suspicion to some extent. So I guess that comes as a relief to her now. It's information that could have and should have been provided a long, long time ago. But what about this possibility, though, that Jeffrey Dupre is still out there somewhere? What happened to him all of those years ago? And if he's out there today, presumably he doesn't know anything about this. Doesn't know who he actually is. That maybe he was taken by somebody just looking to raise a, a young boy themselves. So joining us to talk a bit more about this case, the possibility that Jeffrey's alive, where this goes from here, the, the apology to the mother. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, someone who's been working on this case herself for many years. First as a journalist and later as an invest, a private investigator. Anna J. James is her name and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Anna, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. We'll start with the, the comments uh, from the RCMP this, uh, earlier this month here. You know, the, the comments about what they believe uh, Jeffrey's fate is and, you know, what they said about his mother, how they've handled this investigation, how she was treated. How significant was all of that in your view? Uh,
3: that was a huge watermark moment in the case, uh, not only for, to renew public interest in the case, but also personally for the family, especially Jeffrey's mother, Denise. Uh, so, the, uh, so Chief Superintendent Gra- Gary Graham, the officer in charge of Eastern Alberta District, has now assigned a senior investigator to follow up and review any outstanding information or process new information. Uh, Denise and I are cautiously optimistic about this development. Um, I'm in uh, close contact with that investigator. Um, and, and every every couple of days, I'm checking in with him to ensure that the information that's provided to me is forwarded and handed on to him and handed appropriately. Um, and also, he's keeping on that file.
1: Yeah, you know, the the the, the, the apology uh, to, to Jeffrey's mother, uh, to Denise, has mentioned, I mean... You know, she felt for all of these years that, that she was still considered a suspect, and, and very early on, uh, police had basically cleared her, ruled her out as a suspect, and and but yet they never told her that, which is is really strange. What, what was her reaction, you know, to to hearing that just recently here?
3: I think there there is you know just before this happened, uh, you know, Denise, Denise before in during Christmas. You know, around that period when we started all of this, um, started the media push and, and released the age progression uh, sketch, she was very hopeful. Uh, but in the last month or two, she's, she's, all that anger is kind of coming up. She's, yeah. she's, she's, she was quite angry at the RCMP and how everything was handled. Now, ever since the apology um, and, and the contact that we've had with the investigator and the RCMP in general, uh, I feel like, I feel like she, she's experiencing some relief. Um, and I feel like she feels. We both feel like something's going to be done. Um, I've been in close contact. Uh, I was been chatting with the uh, the investigator on this, uh, and, and I asked him point blank. I said, you know, is this is this just a PR exercise? Is this just kind of a save facing, or, or does this actually mean that you're going to do something? And he's assured me that that they're actually going to look at the file, and and this isn't just a public kind of saving face thing. It's actually something that they're they're really kind of scrambling I don't know if that's the right word, but, but they're working behind the scenes and then quickly to, to put together a plan and enact that plan and actually follow through on what they what they told the public.
1: Right. And they believe that there's there's at least reason to believe that, that Jeffrey is still alive, which is is hugely significant. What's your sense of why they believe that? Does that does that line up with your own assessment of this case?
3: Yes, um, it does. But also, you have to work to, to the evidence that you presented, and not to theories. Uh, however, the resounding tip in this case is the sighting of the couple and the blue truck. So, you know, and I think the presence. So, the couple was a, was a man and a woman, youngish in their thirties, uh, and and the presence of the woman's interesting to me because I'm thinking if a woman was present, you know, that might have that might drastically reduce the option, if it was just a man uh, you know, it showed that he would have likely been killed, but if there was a couple, there may have been a reason why they picked him up, perhaps they lost a child um, perhaps he was raised, they picked him up took him away and he was raised as someone else, uh, and there's also the fact that we've never found remains um, that proves that, that, proved that he's deceased uh, there's also another theory that he was raised as someone else he doesn't know who he is, and he could have died prematurely, I mean right. he's, he's 46 this year so we could have died, you know, from an overdose or an accident or something like that, which is, you know, the leading cause of death of the young men. So so we're also working towards that.
1: Your own involvement in this case, I mean, as mentioned, you, you covered it as a reporter. Uh, you become more involved now as, as a private investigator taking on the file. Talk about your own connection to this case, how you got involved and in, in kind of what, what intrigues or, or fascinates you still about this.
3: There was a few things. I mean, uh, I was up in Yellowknife working as an investigative reporter and I was doing a series on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, and so I was going through uh, a website with, of missing people and I came across Jeffrey's photo. And because i had done so much research in, in that in that particular field of, of journalism, I was surprised that I hadn't seen that much, uh, that many, you know, media stories on him. So, and I know it was in 1980 that he went missing. So I know a lot of that stuff kind of archived. But I thought, you know, this story, this is a this is an interesting story, and, and it should be it should be in the media every year. So I contacted Denise, um, and we started talking, and I started writing. Uh, and then I'd always, always had a on um, the idea of getting my private investigator license in the back of my head. Uh, and um, after talking to Denise, I thought, you know what, I can actually get my boots on the ground with a license. And do some real, real investigation on this, and and Jeffrey became my motivation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned the the photos that have been released. This uh, aging technology that's that's meant to show what this you know boy could look like today as a forty five year old, and and if he's still out there, I mean this could prove to be hugely valuable. What, tell us a bit more about this technology and how this this kind of thing could be useful here.
3: So I. Work of of Tim Whitten. So he is a forensic artist uh, based in the UK. I saw his work online and I thought, oh my gosh, um, you you can even see like every hair on on the head of of one of the computer generated images he's done. So I got in contact with Tim. Tim was very generous with us and offered us a a special um, a special price um, due to the nature of the job, Uh, and he also expedited his service. Uh, so we could get this out in time for Christmas. Christmas was kind of, you know, our goal because we wanted this up where, you know, in the view of where people are getting together with their families, people are talking, people are more emotional and they're, they're more likely to share information. So, so Tim Whedon did an excellent job on this sketch. Uh, and as far as technology, I believe he used uh, Photoshop, uh, but he also added a lot of elements um, from information that we gave him from the family. So I sent him uh, 10 to 15 photos of Denise and Ray and her sons, um, and also like small things like you know um, you know are the sons smokers. You know, is there obesity in the family? How about hair growth? Do they lose their hair at forty? Like all of these you know environmental factors. It's also interesting as well. Um, there's also social factors like you know that that's hard to factor in. It's like what kind of life did Jeffrey lead? The computer generated sketch that that Tim did looks a lot like Jeffrey's brothers. Um, and Jeffrey's brothers are, are quite successful and less uh, healthy and kind of productive lives. So having taken in the fact that, you know, Jeffrey if you know, he's fallen into addiction or, or ill health, um, he's not going to look like that. So, I mean... So it's not a perfect science by any means, but um, I think it's really helpful, especially because it gives the public something to to look at, to talk about, something, to hold, something tangible to hold in their hands yeah. and, and get this case, you know, get, bring a spark to the case.
1: I know Denise has a, a GoFundMe page set up, uh, you know, to try to raise money for more billboards, posters, this kind of work. What else might you be looking for? What kind of information or, or even skill set that, that folks out there might have that can really help make a breakthrough here?
3: We're looking at the moment. We've got the GoFundMe is still active and there's definitely ongoing costs, uh, as you said, with billboards and postering uh, and social media and things like that. Um, And we're also looking for community partnerships, so businesses who want to make a a decent, um, uh, significant financial uh, investment. To, to see this, this case all the way through because the expenses add on. Um, I personally charge for 10% of my time, uh, but the rest is pro bono and we have a small army behind us who are volunteering hours. So uh, we are interested in people who particularly live in Slave Lake uh, and they're more than welcome to email me. Uh, and then anyone who's open to putting up posters, obviously sharing things on social media, and anyone who wants to do a little bit of research and that means compiling media lists or um list of businesses or anything like that, that's what we may be able to contact to let them know about Jeffrey's case.
1: Well, GoFundMe, it's GoFundMe.com. More as well, as mentioned, AnnaJJames.com. And appreciate uh, the update on all of this. Uh, we'll keep following this uh, as well and, and perhaps uh, touch base down the road. But thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. All right, there you go. That's private investigator Anna J. James, uh, time with the case of Jeffrey Dupre. Missing for now just over 42 years. The police believe, or at least there's reason to believe, they say that he is still alive. So there's maybe still an answer out there, maybe still a resolution to this case. You think about how emotional it would be for, for you know, both mother and child. You know, for mother all of these years of not knowing. And, but for, for Jeffrey himself, if he's still up there somewhere, and, and assuming, you know, he was taken by someone and just kind of raised as their own, that he was told some story, whatever that is, about his, um, his birth or his origin or who knows. And he'd grow up thinking all of this, thinking all of that to be true. So now, you know, you're middle-aged, you're in your 40s, and all of a sudden your life is just thrown upside down. That here's the truth about it all. Like, that would be a lot, a lot to deal with, wouldn't it? But there is a mystery here still. Who took him? What happened to him? Late last week, the federal government announced that uh, they were launching a, a study, a consultation on the possible creation of a foreign influence registry. Earlier in the week, though, there was a press conference urging the federal government to take such action without further delay. The Canadian Coalition for a Foreign Influence Registry consists of 33 multicultural civil society organizations. They say Canadians are increasingly concerned about malign foreign influence in our society, institutions and democracy. The well-documented interference includes misinformation and disinformation, bullying and intimidation of diaspora communities by agents of foreign governments and the untracked unaccountable lobbying of Canadian officials and decision makers. So why is it important that the government take steps here to, to better protect us, and in particular to better protect the Chinese-Canadian community from this influence and intimidation? Well, Joining us to talk more about it is Gloria Fung, who is president of the Canada-Hong Kong Link, one of the organizations involved in the Canadian Coalition for a Foreign Influence Registry. Gloria, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks, Rob, for having me today in your program.
1: And this is such an important issue, you know, with everything that's that's come to light, uh, that that we, we really need to start taking some steps. What was your reaction first of all? Now now the Federal Public Safety Minister said last week that a foreign influence registry is now something they're they're looking at, something they're going to study. Is is this happening quickly enough?
2: Yeah, we applaud uh the Canadian government and Minister Badicino for moving forward to an act of foreign influence transparency uh registry to come back foreign interference in canada however um we feel that it is of utmost importance for the government to separate the fira enactment uh, enactments from the study and investigation of the special rapporteur and pass the bill without further delay and so preferably before the next election is called uh, this is very important to safeguard transparency and accountability in our democracy and also to prevent uh, any agents uh, or entities working in the best interest of of foreign regimes to interfere with our future elections.
1: How concerned are you? I mean, everything that that you've seen come to light over the last couple of weeks, some of the stories that have been reported, but even going back further and some of the interference and intimidation that, that you've been witness to.
2: Well, uh, for that case, uh, at civil society organisations, uh, we are deeply concerned about uh, foreign interference on Canadian soil, uh, and specifically from Russia, China and Iran. And they have been uh, doing a lot of things to aggravate the social polarisation. They have also eroded public trust in our democratic institutions and uh, as we uh, organize our community on the ground we have seen a lot of such interference taking place without uh, being attended to by our government nor the enforcement department and we have been raising uh, concern about these to our government for a long long time however uh, little action has been taken by our government to address our concern instance in years 2017 and year uh, 2020, we submitted a national report on intimidation and harassment of dissidents in Canada to uh, the government and also RCMP, but nothing has happened. And uh, so I think I, we are glad that uh, uh, media have been covering a lot of foreign interference related news uh, these days to raise awareness of our Canadians towards the severity of this kind of interference in Canada. So I think uh, we feel that um, as diverse communities, we are the most vulnerable communities subject to uh, threats, intimidation, and harassment uh, by foreign uh, regimes and also the proxies. So we all welcome uh, the passage of. Uh, the Foreign Influence Registry.
1: Mm-hmm. How would this registry help? What kind of a tool would it be for the, the government?
2: Well, uh, this res- uh, registry, just like uh, the one that has already been uh, passed in the U.S. and also Australia, basically it requires all individuals and entities with working relationships with the foreign government and at the same time receiving benefits in return for their missions accomplished in the best interest of the foreign government to register with our government to enhance transparency and accountability in our democratic process. Um, This is actually uh, to enable our elected members of the three levels of government and also uh, bureaucrats to understand whom they are dealing with when they are being approached or lobbied. By individuals or entities in Canada, uh, so far there there are lobbyists uh, registry in place, but it's not sufficient, and that's why and there's no criminal code attached mm-hmm. to it, and that's why a lot of parties do not even bother to register themselves with the government. Uh, however, we have to stress that uh, this registry is just the first step to combat foreign interference. It will not resolve our problems. However, we need it to be in place before the next election is called, uh, so as to enhance the transparency. But our government still need to uh, you know, pass other to, to formulate other measures to tackle foreign interference in all aspects of our society.
1: Yeah. There are critics who say that, you know, a foreign influence registry could end up targeting Chinese Canadians or could somehow contribute to anti-Chinese or anti-Asian racism. What, what do you say to that?
2: Oh, we absolutely, uh, we, we, we know that there is always racism in mm-hmm. all society. However, uh, the foreign influence registry is not linked to any anti-Chinese or anti-Asian racism. Uh, just look at the Australian model. Ever since its enactment, uh, I think in 2019, um, there hasn't been any anti-Chinese or anti-Asian racism being fanned up as a result of the legislation. And we believe this legislation is one that is to protect our diaspora community for foreign threats Intimidation and infiltration. Because by exposing the true agents and entities that works in the best interest of a foreign government, will help to differentiate them from all the rest of us who are, you know, who are truly allegiance to our country and who truly work in the best interest of our our our, our country's uh, sovereignty, national security, and democracy. So if ever there's a cloud of suspicion uh, being created surrounding Chinese-Canadians, it is actually created by the actions of the proxies, yeah. not by the theory.
1: Absolutely. An important point. We'll see where it all goes from here. Gloria, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I really appreciate this.
2: Thank you very much.
1: All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Gloria Fong, president of the Canada Hong Kong Link, one of the 33 organizations, uh, part of the uh, Canadian Coalition for a Foreign Influence Registry, saying that we need action on this. Now, other members uh, of this coalition were testifying uh, before a parliamentary committee late last week, and they told some really troubling stories, Uh, like, for example, uh, Mehmet uh, Toddy, who is with the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. He's been involved in resettling Uyghur refugees in Canada. Two months ago, and this was part of what he testified last week, he got a disturbing phone call. The person on the other end said, quote, that his two sisters were dead and so was his mother. And the whereabouts of his three brothers and their spouses and children are unknown. Right? What a troubling phone call to get. And given the work he's doing, wh- where do you think it's coming from? He said, Beijing is watching every day with the threat of intimidation and harassment. Now, someone else who testified, uh, Chu Quan who's co-chair of the Toronto Association for Democracy in China. He says, sometimes the threats are subtle, but they're always very clear. As you get a phone call in the middle of the day asking, how are your parents doing back in Sichuan, China? And you get the message that it means that if you don't behave, your parents that their well-being is under threat. Uh, so these are Canadians who are being very overtly and directly targeted by China's government. So when they say, you know, this, this intimidation, harassment, interference, it's been going on for years. That's what they're talking about, right? That's what they've been living with. That's what they're seeing firsthand. And unfortunately, all that these warnings have fallen on deaf ears, there's been little response from government. Uh, so now with everything else that's come to light, there's really no ignoring this anymore. But it's why these organizations, you know, representing Chinese Canadians are at the forefront of saying, you know, we got to do something about that. Been a lot, uh, there's been a lot said and a lot written about the mental health impact of the pandemic that we're trying to get a better understanding of. Now, interestingly, there was a paper published last week in the British Medical Journal by a team of researchers at McGill University that suggested that the relative limited toll that there was a relatively limited toll on the mental health of people around the world uh that it was not as severe as we thought that it was a limited impact underlying they say the strength of human resilience and that may be the case but does that apply to everybody what happens if we take a step back and look specifically at the impact on children and there we see some concerning findings There's some newly published research in Lancet Psychiatry that finds even though pediatric emergency department visits decreased during the pandemic, there was also a sharp increase in ER visits for attempted suicide and suicide ideation among children and adolescents uh, in that same period. So, joining us to talk a bit more about these findings, what they tell us about children and mental health and the impact of the last few years. Very pleased, pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon the lead author of this newly published study, Dr. Sherry Madigan, clinical psychologist with the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary. Dr. Madigan, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, and, and not to get you to comment directly on this uh, study in, in the British Medical Journal, but it might seem to some people like we've got some contradictory evidence on, on the mental health impact overall, or more specifically on children. Are these things necessarily contradictory, though?
4: I don't see them as contradictory, because the way we actually measure what about measuring things is is really different. So that study that you mentioned in the British Medical Journal looked at Um, cohorts of kids over time and their symptoms of depression and anxiety through kids reporting for example how they're doing what we did is actually we we looked at emergency department visits so we went into the data that's happening in the emergency departments when physicians might code why a child is particularly there um, and we looked at how what the rates of suicide attempts going to the emergency department for suicide attempts was before the pandemic in kids and what it was during the pandemic and what we're seeing at least in our study is, is an increase of about 22 percent so on average you know at the children's hospital here in in calgary about 102 kids a month might go to the emergency department for suicide attempts and during the pandemic that would have increased to about 125 per month
1: right and this wasn't specific to calgary or alberta or canada this was something we were we're seeing globally
4: yeah so this actually includes over 11 million um, pediatric emergency department visits across 18 countries in the world
1: so what does it represent to you? What, is, what do we glean from this data?
4: Well, I think what this data is telling us is that kids have experienced a lot during the pandemic. And, you know, some kids have actually, they've done okay and, and they've thrived or they've felt like their mental health has been okay. But for a subset of kids, for a variety of different reasons, they've been struggling during the pandemic and... Um, and when kids are really pushed beyond sort of what is, might be their coping threshold, we see that they start to get more severe um, experiences of mental illness. So um, more severe forms of depression or anxiety, which might, for example, engage in more self-harming behavior and thoughts of suicide.
1: And you've done some some research previously on on the impact of the pandemic and the impact it was having on kids' mental health. Uh, I think it was back in in 2021, you led a study looking at, you know, the impact of that that first year of the pandemic. So we've been seeing those signs there, haven't we?
4: Yeah. And we really cautioned back in that last study where we we were actually looking at the number of kids reporting, um, you know, how much they're struggling during the pandemic. And we found that one in four kids said that they were having clinically significant depression or anxiety. So that. was really alarming to us and that was quite an increase from what kids typically were reporting pre-pandemic so we sort of really called attention to the fact that we could have a mental health crisis on our hands and that we really needed to um, infuse uh, policies and supports to really help kids and if we didn't we might see that there are more severe outcomes that that develop and 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 this is an example of of actually seeing that unfold where now we're seeing kids are going to the emergency department more and more Mm -hmm. I think one of the important things that we found is that you know and people should know this that that about the 10 years before the pandemic there was an increasing trend over time of kids going to the emergency department for suicide attempts you know so more and more each year over the last decade and what we tested is whether what that rise that we were seeing in the pandemic was that over and above what we would expect to see if we just looked at trends over time and we did find that so what we're seeing is that the pandemic is actually was sort of an instigator in terms of of uh, all of those different things that kids were struggling with and coping with in terms of opening and closures and restrictions and not having their coping strategies, um, you know, that that had a uh, an effect over and above what we might see ter- pre-pandemic in terms of their suicidal behavior.
1: Okay, so did, it's fair to say then it, it exacerbated an existing situation. That's yeah, very fair to say. Mm-hmm. And, and and we can talk more about some of this pandemic specific uh you know contributing factors what was going on before i know a lot of people have pointed to social media as something that's had a detrimental impact on the mental health of children i mean is that one of the factors that we were seeing at least pre pandemic
4: yeah so i mean that has been one of the conclusions that's frequently drawn is that these rates started to go up and, and that those rates were commensurate with the Wider availability and accessibility of iPhones um, we've also seen that um, different economic circumstances can impact mental health so there have been peaks and and it, it previously you know in the last twenty years or so and and we can't we can't link all of that to to cell phones um, but there is a lot of research going into whether you know cell phones are are are, are, are linked or not. There is some suggestion and some signal there that they do have an impact. Um, and I think that what we'll see over the next few years is a lot more research into seeing whether that's causal or not.
1: So we look at the, the pandemic years, you alluded to it, you know, the school closures in particular or, you know, the disruption in, in social circles, all of these kinds of things that, you know, kids were dealing with. What, what stands out to you as, as maybe being most impactful and what does it tell us about the resiliency of kids or their, their kind of limits, I guess, in terms of what they're able to cope with?
4: Yeah, we know a lot from pre-pandemic literature that tells us that if we pile on too much stress on kids, that, that, that we're going to tip them over into a place where their mental health struggles. And I just think the pandemic was a collection of a variety of stressors that actually um, push them across that threshold or push some kids across that threshold. You know, as adults, we have a lot more years to develop coping strategies, to find our supports, to find those people we can rely on um, when we're struggling. But kids just haven't had a lot of time to develop those coping strategies and to have really mature emotion regulation skills. So um, we we've asked, we asked a lot of them during the pandemic, um, especially adolescents. They're at, they were at a time when, they, they're supposed to start to prioritize their peers. They're supposed to start exploring and, and you know, learning how to sort of be out in the world and mm-hmm. make, uh, you know, make decisions on their own. And, and a lot of the decisions had to be made for them. So we, um, you know, schools were closed. Things became really uncontrollable and unpredictable for them at a time where they wanted more, more control and predictability in their lives. And so I think what we're seeing is as a bit of that aftermath, unfortunately, where, um you know, m- many kids just that that accumulation of impact um, and there's some of their limited coping strategies just collided and uh, have sadly resulted in kids having some more suicidal behavior than, than we would have expected previously.
1: So how do we need to respond going forward?
4: Yeah, well, I think we need to respond in a way, in, in two ways. We need to be preventative. So that means that we need to actually start to implement services like earlier and earlier in development so kids are tend to be much more open and receptive to talking about mental health if we start talking about it early so this is especially important for boys because there's been a tendency for um you know girls are more likely to attempt suicide and and sadly boys are more likely to die by suicide and um some of that some of the conclusions around that have been around stigma. So maybe there's too much stigma in seeking out mental health support or talking about our feelings. Um, and so if we can start doing that earlier on in development so that there becomes a, more of a comfort in talking about how we're doing and reaching out for supports um, when we are struggling, then when kids emerge into adolescence, they'll, they'll have some familiarity with that. Mm-hmm. And then it's really important to obviously um, have more services so kids are in distress they're going to the emergency department about one-third of the kids who leave the emergency department are actually going to get subsequent mental health supports so even though they're going to the emerge they're, they're oftentimes not um, they're being discharged and they're not getting follow-up su- the follow-up supports that they need so I think really thinking critically about how we do um, aftercare and how we help kids through this difficult time, um, making mental health supports widely accessible to everybody, um, it would be a very good start.
1: Absolutely. Well, we'll leave there for now. Dr. Madigan, really appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: All the best. Thanks again. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Sherry Madigan, uh, clinical psychologist and Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary, lead author on this study, uh, published at Lancet Psychiatry. Uh, with researchers from the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto, University of Ottawa, also University College in Dublin. So looking at data from around the world... Uh, and, and seeing this trend in other countries, not just uh, here in Canada, it was a meta-analysis of 42 studies representing over 11 million pediatric emergency department visits across 18 different countries. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.